Although, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast. I'm your host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork, and joining me today is Billy Das, the Indie Dork. What's up, Billy? Man, nothing but great interviews. I am, as always, excited to be here. Yeah, but this one is even a little more special because we are chatting with our pal, Clay McLeod Chapman. Uh, I'm making him a, a, a BFF of it mod. I think that's valid. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if he'll reciprocate, but <laughs> too late. It's happening. It's happened. He's a BFF. Uh, we first met Clay at the Chattanooga Film Festival this year. Yeah. And it was an epic Chattanooga Film Festival. It was. Uh, so we got to, uh, while at the Chattanooga Film Festival, I got to play a bit of D&D with C. Robert Cargill and a couple other folks from the festival. And uh, to my left during that event was one Clay McLeod Chapman. Yeah. And it was beautiful. And we start our conversation with Clay with this event. And longtime listeners of the show are probably tired of hearing about this fabled D&D tale because <laughs> it was really memorable and we can't shut up about it. It was a lot of fun. I had a great time. I was super drunk also, by the way, because they gave us a lot of vodka and whiskey. That is a fact. And and Billy can't drink whiskey, so he was passing all his whiskey to me. And I just remember when we left that D&D game, we were like wandering Chattanooga in a, a, a beer-goggled haze. Well, not beer goggles. I just messed up my metaphor, but you get it. I, I was drunk. We were very drunk, and it was very confusing, and there was, like, a lot of walking that happened. Yeah, a delight, a delight. <laughs> and since then, we've run into Clay at the Overlook Film Festival, and then Lisa and I saw him at the San Diego Comic-Con. Oh, yeah, that's right. So we've been stalking him, and we talk about that, too, in this conversation. Yeah. But the reason Clay is on the show today is because he's out there promoting his new book, uh, the remaking yeah. from Quirk Books. And I just wanted to give a proper uh, telling of the plot. Yep. I'm stealing it right from Amazon.com. We get into it a little bit in the conversation, but I want our listeners to know exactly what is going on in this book. Yeah. Because we loved it. Yeah, it's great. All right. Uh, sit it's, back. It's a, it's a lengthy one. It's like 500 <laughs> words. It's a really long uh, intro, but... I think you get to the end of this um, description that's on Amazon and you go, I have to read that book. Yeah, I agree. So here we go. Sit back. I'm going to take a, a drink of water here yeah. real quick. Oh, oh, hang on. Don't do that to our listeners. <laughs> don't. This is, you know, no, I don't like that. Gross. I'm sorry. Here is, here is the description of the book. Do some editing, Billy. Oh, no, I'm going to edit this side. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. More <laughs> work for editing. me. <laughs> Here we go. Inspired by a true story, this supernatural thriller for fans of horror and true crime follows a tale as it evolves every 20 years with terrifying results. Ella Louise has lived in the woods surrounding Pilots Creek, Virginia for nearly a decade. Publicly, she and her daughter, Jessica, are shunned by the Upper Crust family and the Pilots Creek residents. Privately, desperate townspeople visit her apothecary for a cure to what ails them until Ella Louise is blamed for the death of a prominent customer. Accused of witchcraft, both mother and daughter are burned at the stake in the middle of the night. Ella Louise's burial site is never found, but the little girl has the most famous grave in the South, a steel-reinforced coffin surrounded by a fence of interconnected white crosses. Their story will take the shape of an urban legend as it's told around a campfire by a man forever marked by his boyhood encounters with Jessica. Decades later, a boy at that campfire will cast Amber Pembleton as Jessica in a 70s horror movie inspired by the witch girl of Pilot's Creek. Amber's experiences on that set and its meta remake in the 90s will ripple through pop culture, ruining her life and career after she becomes the target of a witch hunt. Amber's best chance to break the cycle of horror comes when a true crime investigator 
tracks her down to interview her for his popular podcast. But will this final act of storytelling redeem her, or will it bring the story full circle, ready to be told once again, and again, and again? I think, actually, that that is a really great breakdown of the plot. Because basically what the book is, is uh, four or five parts broken out into exactly the elements that are described at each of those instances. Um, And, you know, the thing that hooked me for the book was that opening part where it talks about um, the mother and her daughter being burned at the stake in the woods is, I think, some of the most powerful writing that I have read uh, in recent times. Uh, Like... I don't know what I was expecting when I picked up the book, but I started flipping through it and I could not stop reading it. Um, It's really, really great stuff. And the idea that he's doing about storytelling and telling other people's stories is fascinating. And the the way that that plot synopsis is expressed into parts, it's, it's really good stuff. Well, let's get right into this conversation. Let's let Clay speak for himself. We start in a fun place, and it only gets more wild and delightful. And don't worry, Marvel comic book fanboys, we get into Chapman's Absolute Carnage spinoff title, Separation Anxiety, and we talk a little bit about Scream, his new solo series coming from Marvel in November. Yeah. But let's just get into it. This is fun. And here we go, folks. The man of the hour, Clay (laughs) McLeod Chapman, is in the house, in the door cave. What? That's him. (laughs) Thank you, Clay, so much for joining us. We super appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, keeping the electricity on for me. I'll, I'll burn the place down. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, to be honest, we've been stalking you across the country. Uh, we were talking <laughs> off air. Uh, you know, we've, we first met you at the Chattanooga Film Festival. You played a little D&D with Billy. Uh, we've run into uh, yeah. you at the Overlook, and we've seen you at San Diego. You've been all over the place. We've been all over the place. It, it, it's a pretty auspicious uh, introduction, you know, to begin with that infamous D and D game. Oh yeah. Um, I still kind of, uh, you know, recoil in horror at, at what we did. <laughs> Look, sometimes you accidentally set your friends on fire. That seems like a thing that does happen. I don't know. Dave won't let go of it either. <laughs> oh man. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It sure was. Um, I don't know if, if you've already regaled your listeners with, with stories of that, but I, that was my first D and D game ever. And I feel as if I just, crashed and burned and will never be invited back to the Chattanooga Film Festival ever again. Well, you'll definitely be invited back. Whether you'll be invited back to the D&D game or, or whether Billy will get <laughs> invited back, I don't know. I want to get in on that game. That's my goal next time. You can have my slot. <laughs> it, I mean, in fact, you know, I feel like, Clay, you're selling yourself short. You had a two or three minute song that you put <laughs> together and sang for the entire audience in the middle of that on the spur of the moment. That was really impressive. I, I just I just feel like our D and D master was was just kind of like the eyes were rolling. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 it, it seemed as if like everybody was was just you know there were some people who were having a lot of fun. Other people might not have been having <laughs> as much fun, and it just seemed like you know let's go for broke at that point. What what was there to lose? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know that was my uh, so you think you can sing. What think you can dance? Uh, <laughs> moment that was epic. It was epic, but I agree. I think Cargill really wanted to have some serious D and D people on that table, <laughs> and he was disappointed. Yes, yeah, I, he's never going to talk to me ever again. <laughs> <laughs> but you're here on the show because you have a book coming out in the near future from Quirk Books, the remaking. Yes, and I wanted to get in it with that publication, and where I wanted to start was with, a, I believe, a Goodreads review that you just posted on your Twitter feed that came across my desk. Yes. And it's it's a two-star review <laughs> uh, from somebody named S. And they, yes. they wrote, if you think men are evil, you'll love this book. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, if you get a review like that, I mean, you just have to go with it. Like, it's, uh, I don't, uh, you know... I, I will not begrudge anybody their opinions on this book or anything I've ever written, you know, positive, negative, or otherwise. Like, you got to own it. Um, but that was a special one. I I feel like, you know, that's a—you <laughs> can, can't 
you know, if, if somebody is going to go that far, you know, I, I'm i going to wear it. It's my red badge of courage. I mean, I would put that on the fridge, right? I'd, I'd, I'd mail that off to <laughs> oh, my Oh, it's folks. going on the front cover of the book. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I uh, I love. I think that there's sometimes in good one or two star reviews, there's often a truth to be found there, and I I suspect that that's probably a truth that's hidden in the book. You know, if you share some politics that maybe make you sympathetic to this aim, uh, you probably enjoy the book. I do that a lot with movies that I love. I find the movies that are the nearest and dearest to my heart, and I go find one star reviews of them that fit yeah. like that are the one star reviews that would be the five star review that I write of that book. <laughs> I, I feel like I go for the the David Lynch model, where it's just like, you know, it, the worst reviews are the apathetic reviews, where they just don't care enough to feel one way or another. That it's yep. just like, meh, you know, that was okay. But if you, if you know, five star reviews, totally awesome, great, don't get me wrong. But like a one star review has passion behind it. Like, so, like for somebody to hate something, like you gotta, you gotta earn that. And. Uh, I don't know. Like I embrace those just as much as the the positives. While I appreciate both you and Billy's point of view on this, I find that the negative uh, passion that I encounter is everywhere. It feels like, especially online, that the negative passion overshadows the positive passion. Yes. I'm getting a little exhausted, guys. (laughs) Yes. No, no, no. I, we, we have created an echo chamber where the, the critical, the negative kind of far outweighs the positive. Uh, and that is a heartbreaker for sure. But uh, I don't know if if someone kind of takes the time <laughs> to to read these one star reviews. <laughs> it's uh, you know like there there could be a little bit of something there, a little little nugget just kind of <laughs> shimmers up from the from the muck. I mean, I always remember the bad reviews. I can never remember the good reviews. Like I, I remember uh, an Amazon reader review that I got back in 2003 for a book I wrote where the the headline, the title of this review is, This Book Make Me No Want to Learn English No More. <laughs> and it's like you, you, like I earned that. I killed the English language for this poor reader. And like that's, that takes something. That's an accomplishment. Damn oh, it. Man. Oh, man. That's a fact. That's a fact. But to get back to that specific review, because I'm not going to let S go. When, when you see a response to the remaking that way, is that something that you would have anticipated that the book would get this reaction in the current? cultural and political climate? I don't, I mean, I was aware of it. Yes. I mean, the book, the book itself doesn't take a stance by any stretch, but it is, it, it, it at least kind of goes into the notion of like, who has the right to tell someone's story? Like who, who has the right to tell your story, my story? And in the remakings case, who has the right to tell this particular uh, character story, this mother and daughter uh, who were burned at the stake at, you know, they were thought of as witches. Uh, they're, they're this local town, you know, feared, feared the worst. And, you know, they let their prejudices get the best of them. And, you know, from that incident, a true story, by the way, uh, you know, outspins this urban legend of the, you know, their, their ghosts coming back to haunt the people who, who did this to them. And, you know, and through kind of classic kind of, you know, ring like fashion, you know, every, every person who kind of tells that story of, of these two people, these two women, uh, it, you know, the, the ghost kind of lingers through the telling. And I don't know, like I, if you kind of reflect that or refract that through a kind of modern lens, like, yes, we are in this this Me Too era. And yes, you know, a lot of the times the people kind of behind these stories are are men. And, and what does that say? And so, I, I mean, like, I'm asking these questions and posing these questions to the reader. I don't know if I necessarily wanted to kind of put my foot down and say, I hate men. And therefore, like the people who want to read this book should not like men either. Um, But, you know, to each their own. (laughs) S, wherever you are, if you're listening to this, I, uh, I apologize for, you know, Killing the, the 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 male gender for you. Well, I gotta say, you know, uh, the opening to the book, which kind of tells the story, right, of their being burned at the stake, is incredibly affecting. 
I thought, okay, you know, Clay is a jovial, fun guy. I've enjoyed talking with him. <laughs> it's Quirk Books. <laughs> it's Quirk Books. I'm going to pick this up. It'll be a little light evening reading. And uh, 40 pages later, I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thank you, I hope. No, yeah, that's a that's a positive review. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th- look, I I love campfire stories. Like, I, like this, this whole idea is born out of the idea of telling stories and, and the power of the oral tradition. And I, I grew up in the South. I, I feel as if it has been in my DNA to, to either listen to these stories or try to tell these stories. Like, spinning a good yarn, like telling a good ghost story is, is an art form in of itself. So when I, when I wanted to write this book, I wanted the kind of foundation of it to feel as if the reader was sitting around a campfire and listening to that story, that ghost story of the little witch girl of, of Pilot's Creek. And, I'll, you know, I, I totally have to cop to uh, John Carpenter, you know, the fog. Yeah. Like, I... I love, like, I remember seeing the first, you know, it's like two minutes mm-hmm. of, of like, starting the movie off with the, the like, is like four minutes to midnight on this hour. And, you know, and it's just like, oh, my God, I love that, that, that moment before, before the movie starts and John Carpenter's got the eerie music playing underneath it. And then you go into the movie and it's just like, ah, like, if you could do that in a book, that would be amazing. So that was my that was my guiding principles there. What what was your history with that um, uh, inciting uh, story? Like, how long has that been percolating in your brain? The the true story. Yeah, the, the true story. Um, I'm going to totally come clean and admit that it was a conversation with my editor uh, at Quirk. Jante was amazing. Like, I I pitched this book last year to them. And at that point, it was more of a kind of slasher vibe. Like, I was thinking more of, like, a Friday the 13th sort of thing. Like, you know how Jason Voorhees, like, has his kind of, like, urban legend of, like, the boy who was always in the bottom of the lake. Mm-hmm. And I was going to go that route. And 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 Jante was kind of like, that's cool and all, but, you know, I don't know. Like, she 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 kind of steered me into the, the kind of true crime arena. Like, the, the, the true kind of, like, could we find something that had an element of, of history behind it? And, uh, you know, we, we just started kind of digging around. And lo and behold, Pilot's Knob, Kentucky, the, the little witch girl, like, she is there in the ground as we speak. And anyone who is brave enough to or dumb enough to, uh, you know, be at her graveside at, at, you know, four minutes after midnight, like there there she'll be, you know, asking someone to take her hand. I feel as if like when I when I found that story and the, the, the kind of truth behind it of these two women being burned at the stake and the, the kind of the miscommunication and the prejudices of our culture kind of leading to this this tragedy, uh, it, it felt like there was a lot of pathos there. And, you know, embedding that into this narrative, this, this novel, felt like a real kind of, uh, I don't know, it just felt, it felt palpable in a way that, that Jason Voorhees didn't necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to save that for book two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right, right now I am interested in history as a cycle or the, or the cyclical nature of history and going back to that depression I sometimes hit because of where we are right now and all the, the, the negative information that floods my timelines. Yeah. You know, I was having a conversation with a buddy about uh, the Ava DuVernay documentary or docu drama, uh, when they see us and how we don't seem to learn from these lessons. Like we keep going back to, uh, all our awfulness that are, that our ancestors committed and we can't seem to learn from anybody. And I think that's yeah. what I get from the remaking and, and why it's interesting to me to go that angle and to find a real event that, that there is some sort of conversation going on there about, you know, what we're doing today and how it's not that different from what we did back then. Yeah. What's, I mean, what's the, the saying? Like, you know, those who, uh, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is amazing, and I I would argue, you know, not to bring S's two star review up once again, but like, you know, we're we're in a place where where history is repeating itself, and the, the kind of 
the the cyclical nature is that you you, you want to kind of break out of history or 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 kind of like push push that ring a little bit further out so that it, it just kind of it either snaps or breaks or expands enough that you're you're kind of pushing culture forward just by a step or two before you take a step back as a storyteller you as a storyteller how do you feel that stories have a role in, in helping move that forward and and is that part of your attraction to the art i i do i really do and i mean i think it starts with when we're kids and it's there's a positive and a negative to this where like we we learn by way of those first stories we're told like if our parents are you know telling us a bedtime story you know whatever whatever dna our our families kind of imbue into the stories that they tell us whether that's positive or negative whether that's you know I, I feel as if the foundation of our understanding of the world at large comes from those first few stories we hear as kids. And, you know, the positive of that is that you, you know, storytelling has has a, a certain kind of uplift to it or it's enriching and it, and it kind of like it can help kind of open up the world to you. I think the negative of it is that if there's a certain prejudice in the story, uh, mm. that prejudice is somehow kind of transmitted to the listener and that can kind of extend to another generation. So I think that it's a double-edged sword, but for me, the positive far outweighs the negative. And I, I feel as if, you know, having two kids of my own, like I'm just very kind of keenly aware of like, you know, you tell your children a story before they fall asleep. And then that's what kind of feeds their their dreams. And that's what they kind of like, that becomes the bedrock for their subconscious. And like that, then you're, you know, you're, you're screwing your kids up for the rest of their lives. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's funny that you say that because I, I have, um, I have three kids of my own and you know, one of the things that I've been doing with my oldest daughter, who's 10 now, is uh, walking her through uh, more adult movies and kind of working with her to expand her cinematic horizons. And I think that part of the reason that makes me feel compelled to do that is because of, like, my approach as a father to her is to help teach her how stories are constructed so that mm-hmm. as as she grows up and processes these stories that are being told to her by by her parents, you know, us or uh, the world or media around her, that that she has some facility with the language of storytelling to kind of start to like decide what does this mean and and what how should this inform me as a person as I go forward? Yeah, yeah. We uh, my wife just uh, uh, screened Star Wars to our oldest child who's six and. Uh, it you know it is that whole notion of like the archetypes are now there like he's he 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 knew about star wars before he even seen star wars because it's just it's in our cultural dna mm-hmm. but like to like bring those those kind of joseph campbell archetypes to the forefront and like show them show them to him like it was it was kind of cool like it was it was exciting um and now we have uh, lightsaber fights in our house <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the film was a success it still works Yes, yes. Um, I, uh, I I feel like my wife is deserved all the credit because she she was like, we got we got to get him and watch it. We got to get him and watch it. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I just remember. I remember when I watched it, and like when uh, <laughs> Luke's uncle and aunt are like, when you see their charred <laughs> yep. corpses, yep. And I'm just like, no, no, thank you. I was like, is he ready for that? Ah, but to your earlier point about campfire tales, I think it's important to encounter these like horrible things uh, at a young age to start the, the process of death and 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 what have you. And that's Star Wars is probably where I start. I encountered the most early concepts of of, of the big life things. Yeah, it's amazing. Like it's all like uh, that's what I think stories have the power to do. That whether it's a movie or a book or a comic book, like they. They, they kind of open the world up in ways that maybe adults or parents can't yet. And uh, like it, it, it at least kind of broaches the topic in a way that's, you know, palatable uh, 
we're not quite yet too scary stories to tell in the dark, but we're, we're getting there. <laughs> there. Just a couple of hop skips and a jump from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Here we come. <laughs> if I have my way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by the creation process behind the remaking. You've already given us a little bit of a glimpse into it. Uh, you know, the gestation process and then your, your collaboration with your editors and your publisher, uh, you know, can, how long have you been working on the remaking? Um, well, I've had the idea for a long time. And uh, I I will be frank and talk about the kind of construction of it because the, the idea has been gestating for years and the structure of it has been gestating for years. The actual execution of it was was pretty down and dirty. I, I stumbled into this opportunity and, and Quirk kind of scooped me up and uh, we we started kind of having the kind of conversation about this book uh, back in June or July, July of last year. And um, it wasn't until uh, maybe September when it was kind of like, you know, this this could be a thing. Like, let's let's start this. And then there was a, a kind of a, a more frank conversation with my editor of like, this could be a fall of. 2019 book, or it could be a fall of 2020 book. But for it to be a fall of 2019 book, you would have to have a draft in by by January. Hmm. Um, so I I basically didn't do anything with myself for a couple months of you know I just I basically uh, did the kind of the the punk rock version of this book, and uh, I, I I kind of hammered out the three chord uh, song, um, and that that is what became the remaking. I had to do this thing for myself and uh, for better or for worse. Like I, I cast myself uh, in my mind as a, a kind of dime store paperback novelist. Yes. Like I wanted, mm. I wanted to, to think of those, like that rotating wire rack mm. at the grocery store, you know, where you see those amazing pulpy, you know, freaky uh, paperback covers, um, pa- you know, total Grady Hendrix paperbacks from hell style. Yeah. Like, you know, just, just thinking, uh, thinking in terms of remembering where those books were and where they landed for me in my, my life. I wanted to be that. And I pretended to be that. And uh, what, how that, implemented itself i'm not necessarily sure but like in my mind i had to kind of put on this weird hat and uh you know i am now this type of author this is the thing that i am creating and that that was the process that that went into making the book well in 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 taking on that role as you know the pulp character like it's it's like almost sounds like a performance really uh, uh, uh did that free you to to spew it out, to get that first draft out, to not be as precious with the material? Yes. I, I mean, like, I also grew up in a, in a kind of like a punk rock scene. And I, and I, I feel like there's certain, there's something to be said about uh, disparate elements coming together. And, and I'm going to forsake my chance at a Pulitzer kind of talking this way, um, <laughs> which is fine. You know, it is what it is. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, the things that were most valuable was voice, tone, atmosphere, flow, um, rhythm, like a narrative rhythm, a narrative cadence, uh, almost to the extent where it felt like a recitation, like it was like almost an incantation. Um, the the constructions of the words, the sentences themselves, like they it broke down in this way that was a lot different than than how I normally write. And a lot of that had to do with the kind of the the time frame and the window of opportunity. But it also I think it also fit the book itself. Like the you know, none of this in my mind at least, you know, the critics may say otherwise, but like it kind of enhanced the experience of what the book would be rather than be precious about the words themselves, mm. which is not to say that there's not, I mean, there's, there's fashioning, there's, there's a structure and a, a style there, but the style is, is something more, uh, about the way it's, it's meant to be read. I didn't want to, I didn't want to live in a sentence. I wanted to live in a breath. Oh man. Put that in, I, that's my motivational quote of the day. <laughs> So, uh, are you required to do an outline before that first draft? Yes. This this one was very structured. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the most structured thing I've ever written, too. Like I, like I sent in a treatment, which was probably no more than like somewhere between three and six pages. 
Um, and it was it was basically this is what part one is going to do. This is what part two is going to do. This is what part three and part four are going to do. And like living within each of those to say this is this is what we explore here. This is what what's going to happen. And you know. I, I knew going in that like each section was going to have its own feel, its own vibe. And I, you know, each had to, to be kind of its own tactic in a weird way, its own approach. Um, and I, I feel as if some of the best, some of my personal favorite horror films out there are anthology horror films. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is a wraparound or, or some kind of narrative thread that kind of fuses these stories together. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily go as far as to say that the remaking is an anthology book, but they do have a, a certain kind of uh, fragmented mm-hmm. f- feel that, that makes it, you know, now you approach this story and how's that story different than the last story and how does it connect to the story that's coming up and like it just all you know feeds into one another but but feels um prismatic at the same time we're telling a micro story while while focusing also on the macro so when you knock out the punk rock version the pulp version how uh, close to the outline does it remain i you know, I, I'd say for for this one, it hewed pretty pretty close. I think there was a the the jury is out if I stuck the landing, but I do <laughs> think that like uh, for me it was I knew where A to B was. I I had a sense of how I wanted to get there. I knew the structure that would essentially be the framework to to kind of support that story, and then it was just a matter of like the organic quality to the writing was then to lose myself in those, that, that scaffolding and that, that kind of, you know, it, what is the Lars von Trier movie, the five obstructions where it's like, uh-huh. you know, you got to tell this story, but you got to tell it this way. Like that was my, I gave myself four obstructions and that, that was, that was my goal. I'm ready to jump on over to Marvel comics. Do you have anything else you wanted to say about the remaking before we did that? I mean, there there are some five-star reviews. S doesn't get to hold the sway over, you know, all of Goodreads. And if you're out there, Goodreads listeners, please, like, feel free to kind of chime in. Well, we'll give the It Mod Approved also the intro and outro. Uh, but we enjoyed the remaking uh, a hell of a lot more than S did. Oh, well, thank you. You gave it three stars. <laughs> No, man, you got, you've got a solid book here. And it's, you know, when I say I sat down to read it thinking it was going to be one thing um, and finding it to be another, like, I found that to be very engaging. And what you're saying about, um, like, living in the breathing of the story as you're telling it is something that very much comes through with the intro that you're doing. And I can feel that, like, the truth of that approach as you're saying it. So I find that to be fascinating. And as a writer uh, myself of things, I, I do sometimes try and aim for the emotionality of what I'm doing and let that drive the direction of it versus sometimes a more technical approach to be sharper in a different way. And yeah. I find that that kind of changes the feel of the things that I'm writing. And so I find this conversation to be very, very interesting. Awesome. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you. All right. So Brad really just wants to talk Marvel comics right now. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big comic book fanboy. Uh, you know, absolute carnage is, you know, the hottest thing that's happening at Marvel. You know, Hickman's doing his own X-Men thing. I'm, I'm loving what Hickman's doing with the X-Men stuff. Uh, but absolute carnage. Number one comes out with uh, Donnie Cates and Stegman, you know, just t- taking nineties concepts that I was so dismissive towards in my youth and really like making something epic and grand and just cosmically cool. Totally, totally. And you have, and I've just finished reading it uh, a couple days ago, Separation Anxiety, number one, which is like a spinoff from Absolute Carnage. And its main focus is on the Life Foundation symbiotes. And you have told a really horrific, mostly sad I couldn't believe how sad I was by the end of the comic book. Uh, spin on those particular alien creatures. And I just wanted to know, like, you know, one, how did you get involved? What is it, you know, like, what was your feeling about these characters beforehand? Did you have any feeling before it? And then what was your pitch to Marvel to produce this 
this sad, sad horror story. <laughs> oh man, I, I feel like such a buzzkill. It's the best kind of sadness. I loved this book. It was a lot of fun. I mean, like, uh, you know, honestly, the the credit should go. Well, two people should totally get credit, and that's editor Devin Lewis and uh, artist Brian Level. Like, they, I think, uh, to start off, Devin came to me and said, "Hey, uh, Absolute Carnage, you wanna you wanna delve in and play with the Life Foundation?" And it was kind of like, "Yeah, that sounds awesome." And uh, I had no idea where they had ended up. Like, I didn't know about the dog. There was an issue of Deadpool with with the symbiotes, and they they gave me the kind of the A and the B. Mm. Um, and they were saying, what happens in between that is up to you. And I, it was something about that dog. And, I mean, I'm just going to cop to it. Like, I just instantaneously, the first thing that came to my mind was the thing. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. Like, you know, I, I'm obsessed with John Carpenter, if that's not clear in this conversation. Um, I was like, oh, my God, the thing. And, uh, you know, what I always find interesting about the, the symbiotes and, and their kind of relationships to their hosts is the, the kind of, uh, I don't want to say love per se, but the, the kind of the relationship, the relationship of, you know, host and parasite. And I, you know, I just, I just started thinking about family because, you know, I had, I'd been able to write a, a while back, uh, a Deadpool and Venom comic. Uh, but this was the first time kind of writing about the, a, a, a quartet of, of symbiotes, which, you know, a family of four kind of came to mind and was like, oh, you know, rather than dealing with a specific relationship, let's deal with a family dynamic. And, but, you know, so it just kind of was systematically working back from those, those ideas. Um, the main goal was to just try to be scary. Like I really wanted to write something that was scary. Um, because with, with these tie-ins, these one-offs, you know, you have so little room to do much. So it's like, you have to hit the ground running. And, uh, I just, I just wanted to like create a really, really tense, like, uh, like almost like an escape movie story. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like these kids have to get out of the house at whatever cost. Um, and that was, th those are the driving principles behind it. And, uh, Brian level, man, the artist, he is amazing. And like, you know, Whatever I wrote and sent to him, he made it a hundred times better. I mean, yeah, the art's awesome. The art is insane. It is phenomenal. And he he really, you know, the whole thing of like seeing the parent, like seeing the people, the hosts still within the body, mm -hmm. like that's all him. Like I, like when he came upon that, it was just like, this is insane. Like this is like a hundred times better than what I could have ever have done. While you're talking, I'm, I'm, that's the image I'm literally looking at right now is the, no, please, Sadie, Sadie, come to daddy. And then yeah. you see his face in the chest of the symbiote. Yeah. Horrifying. So gross. Amazing. Oh my, my favorite one is when the neighbor comes to the door and <laughs> the mom is there and she's like a little symbiote puppet. It's yeah. so gross. Uh, but, you know, like. I'm fascinated with, you know, working within something like Absolute Carnage, which is this mega event that's going to spin off into all these little solo titles and have their own little shenanigans going on. And and so often, you know, they don't do it for me. But, man, this book, Separation Anxiety, I, I think, it like, it's essential comic. Like, outside of, like, Absolute Carnage, if you like these characters at all, you've got to read this book. It is so effective. It's it was it was fun to do. And I I mean like I I can't wait to see where it goes from here, you know? It's uh they they've been planning this for a long time. So it's uh and I think it's 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 paying out. Well, you can tell that there's a lot of uh, plot and and uh, scheming going on well before they they execute this thing. I'm really impressed with what they're doing. Totally, totally. Uh, and I know you can't talk much about it, but you will be launching uh, the solo Scream uh, title as well for Marvel. Yes, I will. That's nuts. It's crazy. It's nuts. I think that is all I can say about it. It's nuts. <laughs> Whatever they said in the the little teaser, that's as that is as far as my lips go. So. It is so cool. I am so excited. Uh, congratulations. Were you were you uh, a Marvel kid growing up? Yeah. I you know, I think DC was the intro 
Yeah, yeah. Batman was. You're the allowed intro. to like DC. I love DC. Yeah. It's not a us, yeah. you know, versus them uh, mentality. No, 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 especially no. We're now. all a family. We're, We're all, all family. family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, Batman got me in. He was my gateway, and uh, then then you get to your your surly teens, and then you realize that like you know X Men's where it's at, and you know <laughs> Marvel's where it's at, and like nobody understands me, and but Marvel does. For some reason, like I, I, I kind of dabbled, like I phased into uh, horror comics, but uh, yeah. it was always, it was always the Joker, like the Joker, like I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, it was something about just the Killing Joke got me, you know, Dark Knight got me, like it was, that's where it all began. Brian Boland's Joker is still the Joker. That's yeah. an amazing Joker. Uh, and anytime I see any other Joker that's not Brian Boland, I'm like, eh, it's not my Joker. <laughs> I'm that jerk. Uh, all right. So, Clay, going forward with uh, the remaking coming out, you're launching all over the place. You're talking to all kinds of people. You're doing publicity on top of Marvel. Uh, how are you still doing like the pumpkin pie show? Well, the cool thing this year is the show is going to be uh, part one of the remaking. I'm going to do that uh, campfire story. And uh, yeah, I mean, the idea is just to go, you know, go wherever I can, coming to a campfire near you uh, and just spinning the ghost story of the little witch girl. Um, So, you know, hopefully one day we'll all be able to sit at a campfire together, Uh, whether that's the Overlook, whether that's Chattanooga, you know, I'll... uh, See you guys next year. I mean, I would love that. that. Yes, please. That sounds awesome. You know, Billy and I, when we saw you at uh, the Overlook Festival this year, you were doing, you know, those one-on-one storytelling sessions. <laughs> and uh, one, I can't believe that you are able to do that in such a short amount of time. But two, I was jealous that we did not partake in any of them. So at some point, we're going to have to. Yes, yes. It was exhausting, but it's a lot of fun. Um, I'll I'll go back. I'll go. Hell, I'll go anywhere anyone wants me to. Yeah. So yeah. Um, have show. We'll travel. Well, you know, man, we uh, we talked with uh, Dave Lawson when we were at the Chattanooga Film Festival, and he, you know, he can't he came on to talk about their um, uh, rustic endeavors. And the first thing that he said when he came on to talk about the Chattanooga Film Festival was how he had just come out of your pumpkin pie show. <laughs> and literal direct, you can go listen to the interview. It's, I mean, it's, it's in the archives for the chat cast, but like he straight up was like, that guy's coming back every fucking year <laughs> because he just blew my mind. Uh, awesome. so I'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll get a chance to hear, uh, the, the little witch girl story, uh, at the Chattanooga film festival next year. That would be fucking rad. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not D and D. But definitely. <laughs> um, so uh, I think we're coming up to the end of our time, and we have one question that we like to ask uh, sort of all the creators uh, who come through the podcast, because we know that uh, creating things, whether it's uh, independent filmmaking or uh, novel writing or comic book writing, uh, you know, that it is not all highs, that, that there are mm-hmm. very frequently lows. It's a really, really hard thing to do. So we like to end on a positive note. Um, looking back at your career, is there one moment that, that you look back to that makes you feel appreciative for the career that you have um, or helps buoy you in low times when things aren't working right that day? Oh, man. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I will say the, one of the benefits of performance, at least, is that uh, there's a direct connection to the audience, the people kind of partaking in the thing that you're putting out there in the world. And uh, whatever, whatever the, the thing itself is, I always feel like there's something really... Um, I don't know. Like I, I think one of the reasons why, I mean, you asked the question of like, how do you find time to do the pumpkin pie show anymore? And, and frankly, there isn't time, but it's, it's, it's worth it for me because it's the one time that I can actually see people engage. And it is, you know, to some extent, a connection to the audience. And, uh, it's very self-serving and it's very, you know, hopefully it's not so one-sided, but it is, it is really gratifying to me because you, I can see how the audience is reacting and it, 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 it establishes, uh, a link, like a, it is, it's a heart line as far as I'm concerned. Um, just so happens that I'm creeping them out or spooking them out, but, uh, it's still, it's still something. And, uh, I don't know, like I, 
I find it really uh, re- reassuring that like people still want to listen to stories um, in this this kind of like intimate, uh, intimate, uh, you know, personable. You know, I want to see the white the whites of the audience's yeah. eyes. Hmm. That matters to me. Like it's you know it's you know I'm not going to make a lot of money off of it, but I will at least be able to say like I see you and you see me. And that's 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 really it's important to me. I think that that's a great answer. Great answer, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Clay, where can our listeners find you online? Where can they pester you? Where, where can they throw their five star only reviews? Yeah, come on, guys, remake? five stars. Clay's great. <laughs> the book stars, is great. Guys. The comic is great. Five stars. Goodreads, Goodreads. Um, but I'm you know I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, Clay McLeod Chapman. Um, I'm out there. Uh, you know, I, I would definitely say, uh, you know, the remaking comes out on Quirk Books October 8th. So that's coming up. Uh, the Scream series for Marvel is coming out in November. Uh, Absolute Carnage is out there already. So yeah, pick, pick them up at your local store. All right, Clay, thank you so much for joining us today. We super appreciate it. We love talking to you. You guys are amazing. After thank you. Scream, thank you, you got to come back. <laughs> then we can talk about it. I, I am totally down. Cool. Thank awesome. you. Thank you, guys. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. And there you have it, Clay McLeod Chapman. Thank you so much for joining us. That was cool. He's such a great dude, man. I like, I just, I love everything that he's doing right now. He's awesome. He's my BFF. He doesn't know it, but he is. Sorry, Billy, you've been downgraded. Okay. I mean, I understand. Uh, I'm no storyteller. But no joke, if you have not picked up separation anxiety head to your local comic book shop uh you could download the digital at comiXology it's it's really easy to do that and you will not be disappointed clay is right brian level's artwork is insane on the comic and clearly inspired by what went down in john carpenter's the thing and it's just like oh so good i i confess while we were talking you know we had the separation anxiety comic out on the table and at a couple points during the conversation, I just got distracted flipping through the book. It's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, that's when the, when there was that slight pause in the conversation. <laughs> it's because Billy was reading a comic book. Look, man, it's rad. Okay? It is super rad. It is super rad. Uh, so there you have it. Oh, you got to buy his book. Yeah, the, the remaking. remaking. It's available for pre-order on Amazon right now. It comes out October the eighth. Guys, go pre-order this book. It's rad. You will love it. You will love it. It mod approves, like we said. And Billy, 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 coming up in the near future. Actually, it will have been the past when our listeners are hearing this conversation. You spoke to, and I spoke to, a bunch of really cool filmmakers at the Genre Blast Film Festival at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia. And next week, those episodes are going to start to drop. Genre Blast is a really cool place. Um, A a guy by the name of Nathan Ludwig uh, partnered up with Andy uh, at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia to uh, bring a host of like truly like low budget independent filmmakers who are out there doing what they can to put movies together. And they're great artists. It's the kind of place that um, a lot of the filmmakers actually show up to attend. So when you go, you get to watch movies with the creators who are there with them. Uh, And if indie filmmaking is your scene, that's the place that you want to go check out. What I get from Genre Blast is a tremendous sense of go out and do it. Right. Yeah, exactly. You come out of those movies and you go like, damn it, these guys walk the walk. Yeah. You know, they wanted to do something, they had a story to tell, and they found a way to make those movies. And there's no reason why Brad shouldn't be doing the exact same thing. Well, I mean, you know, uh, the first time that we met Dave Palomaro for Murder Made Easy was through uh, the Genre Blast interview. And, like, that's one of my favorite conversations with him and JK this year about uh, giving yourself permission to go out and do the things that are dreams for you right now and turn them into reality. And that spirit, like you say, runs runs rampant at Genre yeah. Blast. So get excited for those episodes. It's going to be a whole slew of them. Really yeah. cool. Really cool. Uh, Billy... 
where can our listeners find you online? I heard when we were talking to Clay, you mentioned something I had never heard before. You and your daughter Claire have a podcast. <laughs> is this had what? I not mentioned that? No, I, I I'm shocked. New. I'm shocked. I just try and bring new it up knowledge. Okay, well, let me break it down. Uh, so, uh, my daughter and I co-host a podcast called Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures, and basically, we work together to expand her cinematic horizons. Um, we just came back from a hiatus. The most recent episodes are uh, Jaws. We do a little behind the scenes look at how we work together to come up with titles because it's not just me telling her what to watch. We work together on that. Um, we have an episode on Varsity Blues. We just did Shaun of the Dead. Uh, and I think right about now then, we're finally getting into our new project, which is a look back at the Universal Horror monster movies. What one are you going to start with? Uh, I'm not sure. Oh, I'm not there's sure. only one answer, Bill. What do you think the answer is? I think you have to start with Frankenstein. I know it's not the first in the uh-huh. Universal monster movies, but I think you got to start with Frankenstein. I will also accept Wolfman. I'll also accept Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. <laughs> not um, invisible. You don't start with Invisible Man, and I don't think no. you start with Dracula. No, I don't think so. But um, those titles are basically the ones that we're going to kind of work our way through. And then also probably Bride of Frankenstein, depending on how she's into Frankenstein. How about Todd Browning's Freaks? Uh, I have not thought about whether or not to show that to her. I'd be very curious to see how Claire (laughs) reacts to that film. Uh, I want to see how she does with the like the the baseline yeah, yeah, entry yeah, yeah, that everybody's yeah, yeah, familiar yeah. with. Freaks does, um, Freaks doesn't <laughs> count. It doesn't go along with those other movies. I know, I know. No. But Todd Browning and Freaks. I think it's a better movie than Dracula. Uh, I think you might have a case there. It's yeah. it's certainly an interesting movie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'll accept that too. Uh, and you're on, you're on Twitter. Have you said that already? Uh, on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at WBDAS, or you can find the podcast uh, at B A C E A Podcast. And follow our other dorks, Darren Smith at the Disco Dork. Follow Brian Young at the Turtle Dork. Follow Lisa Gullickson at Sidewalk Siren. And I am Brad Gullickson at Mouth Dork on all social medias. You know, Billy's got a, got his own podcast. I have another podcast as well. Yeah, we're, you should mention. We're doing multiple podcasts. You, one, you should be listening to the regular show in the Mouth of Dorkness. Yes, you should. Their Weekend Dorks and Review Casts are yes. great. Uh, we just did our Fistful of Summer and our Fistful of Fall Anticipation episodes. Oh, yeah. And um, I have the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast, which I do with Lisa. And we are currently covering Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky's Sex Criminals. Yes! Which... Billy is really excited about. I love that comic, man. <laughs> I'm one trade paperback in. That's the most amount of sex criminals that I've ever read. And it is something. It is definitely something. I like it. Yeah. But it, it's something with some dildos. It's, oh boy, so many dildos. Uh, yeah, I guess that's it. I guess that's going to wrap us up. Uh, until next time, folks, take care. <laughs> Later. Something with a dildo. You're not going to do the bye thing? Bye! <laughs> Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? Um, so I'm just testing out the audio, Billy. How's your audio today? Oh, I bet my audio is working pretty good. Yeah. These pipes are functional. Oh, I thought you were going to be like, these pipes are clean! Cabin boy! Everyone should watch that. Stinger! Yes, everyone should watch it. You say no to Cabin Boy? Uh, I don't remember the last time I watched Cabin Boy. Uh, I suppose I should. I, we should have talked to Clay about that. I bet you he would have liked Cabin Boy. Everyone likes Cabin Boy. Uh, maybe. I don't know. As a spoof, it's it's kind of a spoof, right? Yeah, it's a spoof. It's produced by Tim Burton. It's it's like a it's like a, it's a weird like coming of age story of a man who's like forty playing the role. Right? Yeah, yeah. Chris Elliott, Chris super Elliott's, immature. Yeah. yeah. You know? Somewhere in there is a stinger, and I'm going to use it. And it's probably going to be like, these pipes are clean! Yeah, for sure, that should be (laughs) it.